Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you today uh, that as we consider it as the topic of our study, uh, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us, that you would be glorified through our continued study of your means of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so going back to uh, our last study, which was actually week before last, uh, we asked the question, why is the Word of God necessary? Why is the Word of God necessary? Uh, We looked at the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, point one, that although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. And we ask the question, then, what is the light of nature and the works of creation and providence? What are they sufficient to do? Uh, Well, according to our confession and drawing, of course, from Romans chapter 1, they are sufficient to leave men without excuse, to leave men uh, unexcusable. What is the light of nature and the works of creation and providence insufficient to do? Well, they are insufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. In other words, what we studied was that God must reveal Himself and He must declare His will to His church. And God has chosen to do that, to reveal Himself and His will As the confession says, at sundry times, meaning uh, through time, God has revealed His will to man in various ways, but in these last days, He has chosen to reveal Himself in His written Word. In His written Word. And so, where that left us today then, uh, and again, I know that's taking a lot, and uh, scrunching it into a really brief review. You can go back to our YouTube channel and you can pick up that lecture if you'd like to look at that in in greater depth and the scripture that we looked at through that. Uh, But in essence, where that leaves us today is the question that if, if scripture is necessary, if scripture is necessary, to, reveal, to, to, to know and to understand God's will, then we should ask the question, pretty simple, what is Scripture? What is Scripture? And that, that's the question that I want to begin with today. What is Scripture? Here's the way that the Confession puts it in chapter 1, point 2. Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old, Genesis through Malachi, and New Testaments, Matthew through Revelation, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. And so, so our confession, as I have said before, starts in chapter 1, uh, not with what we would call theologically theology proper, Uh, that is the study of God, but starts with the canon of Scripture. What is Scripture? Why is Scripture necessary? And uh, what is Scripture? Arguments for, then, the canon of Scripture have argued historically from a couple of different angles. And I think some of you will be uh, familiar with this. Uh, Oftentimes, if somebody says, well, now how do you know what Scripture is? 
what is, is the canon of Scripture? Our confession says it's Genesis through Revelation. How do we know what that canon is? And there have been a couple of approaches that have been taken. One is we could call it the approach of historical origin. Historical origin. And that's the, the argument that if uh, we are good students of history, we can go back into history and we can fairly well deductively determine what is and what is not or what is Scripture. The other approach that has been taken is this, the perspective of church reception. Church reception. And this would be the, the position that our friends, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church take. That, that if we say, we'll just say, for example, the New Testament canon. The New Testament canon is known, they would say, because a council met and that church council decided that that is, in fact, the New Testament canon of Scripture. And I would imagine a number of you have heard this argument before. In fact, some of you may have been taught that that is how we know what Scripture is or what Scripture is not. That Scripture is known by going back and doing the hard work of historical origin, and it is by how the church received it, the church reception argument. Now... Something that is oftentimes overlooked, and I think this is partly because as, as Protestants, uh, sadly, uh, this was not always the case, but in, in a modern era, uh, Protestants, we, we, we don't know our church history very well. Um, and so we are at a disadvantage from our ancestors, especially and uh, notably leading into and out of the Protestant Reformation. And that is, uh, what, were, what was the argument for this question, what is Scripture coming from the Reformation? And I'll just give you a little bit of hint. It involves this, but it's not this. It involves this, but it's not this. In other words, both of these support and feed into an argument, but the historic Protestant understanding of what is Scripture is through a word, and this is important for you to know, is by self, self-authentication. Self-authentication. Now, for example, our canon is not validated only because a church council said it is so, nor is it validated just because a prophet or an apostle wrote it, although those are important parts of understanding it. And the reason why, and I'm going to elaborate a lot on this, the reason why the Protestant understanding of what of Scripture is, is that Scripture is self-authenticating, and I'm going to go into greater detail as to what the definition of that is, but that the main reason is because if we put historical origin above Scripture's identifying of itself, then historical origin has authority over it. If somebody comes along and says, 
we found it. We find, we've been looking all this time, that, that magical book out there in the wilderness of, of America. Finally, Moroni, she left it for us. We found this book. We've got to include it. Could that be historically validated? Is that what leads to saying that Scripture is Scripture? Or someone could say, and our confession actually deals with this aspect, in terms of of church reception, that not only is Scripture Genesis through Revelation, but also that those lovely books that are commonly called the Apocrypha are also included to some degree within the canon of Scripture because... Well, the Council of Trent, or whatever council, said so, and therefore it is is validated. Well, the problem with that is, is that it gives the church council, or however, whatever body of the church it is, authority over Scripture. Does history or the church council have authority over the Word of God? No. And so this is why the Reformers, and if you want to read to a large degree about this concept, I would refer you to Calvin's Institutes. But the main idea is that Scripture is truly inspired by God, and therefore it authenticates itself. Think about it this way. In terms of of a testimony of Scripture, think about it this way. The writer of Hebrews uses a very interesting turn of phrase. He says that God swore to Himself. You may recall this in regards regards to, to Abraham and the covenant. And God swore to Himself. And do you remember why? I'm drawing from Hebrews chapter 6. Do you remember why the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says that God swore to Himself? Who swears to themselves? No, no, nobody does that. I mean, you know, we, we have the, the, the vulgar expression that's often used as a, as a curse, I swear to God, but it's not always used in the sense of a, a curse, right? As I uh, testify to the truth, uh, if I may say, so help me God, I would swear to someone of greater authority than me, right? But the writer of Hebrews says that God swears to Himself. Why did God do that? Ah, you looked it up, right? I think he's probably on the handout, maybe. Okay, okay. You had that memorized. That's right. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 says that God swore to Himself because He had no one greater by whom to swear. And carrying that same logic forward then, Scripture is inspired by God. There is nothing greater outside of itself to testify to it. So, and I, again, I want to be clear, we're, we're going to come back in the coming weeks and we're going to look at this, and in the coming weeks we're going to look at this, and these are important. But Scripture is not Scripture because of these. Scripture is Scripture because it authenticates itself. So, at this point then, you should be asking, okay, and, and again, some of you may be familiar with this, some of you may not. I have found in my own experience that most Protestants don't even know that this is one of the arguments of the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, uh, and it is, by the way. Uh, but in terms of <clears throat> this, you should be asking yourself, I would imagine then, so then what is, or what do we mean by... Self 
authenticating. Authenticating. What do we mean by that term? And I'm going to pause here and say simply uh, that a couple of places that for, for those of you that, that may find this fascinating, for some of you who would like to read far more on this than I'm going to cover today and, and in the coming Sundays, um, I've already said that I would refer you to Calvin's uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion. You ought to read it anyway, right? Uh, but in addition to that, in terms of the New Testament canon, one of our, our PCA theologians, uh, Michael Kruger, has written a book, and it focuses on the New Testament canon, but it's titled Canon Revisited, Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament Books. It, it's a brilliant read. Um, the first part of it is a bit academic, but the rest of it, it just flows, and it's, it's enjoyable to read. And so I would in, uh, encourage you, uh, Michael teaches at RTS over in Charlotte, if I remember correctly, uh, and is an ordained PCA minister, uh, but it's a great book and, and something I commend to you. So what do we mean by this? Well, the idea of self-authenticating and drawing from the Latin word uh, autopistic dates back actually long before the Reformation. I mean long, long, long before the Reformation. It actually dates back to the patristic period. The patristic period and specifically <clears throat> to Augustine's Confessions or St. Augustine's Confessions. And in Augustine's Confessions, he makes the argument <clears throat> that Scripture, as it is the very Word of God, it is, it is inspired by God. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, you've heard me quote it a number of times, but there's a very, 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 very important uh, Greek word uh, there uh, that is, and this is, in Eng translated into English, but Theo, which is God, Theonoustos. Theonoustos, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is, and it's often translated, breathed out by God or the breath of God or something like that. Uh, but the idea is, is that in its, in its uh, uh, what would you call it, the, the understanding of just the simplicity of the word, uh, this is to breathe or related to uh, spirit, pneumos, and this is God so breathed out by God or the breath of God is my preferred uh, translation of that. But nevertheless, it goes all the way back to, to St. Augustine's argument in his confessions of this concept. And so when the Reformation came along, and I, I would remind you that in the Protestant Reformation, uh, Calvin... Uh, continued to make an argument that he was doing nothing new. He said, I, I'm, 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 this is John's words, not uh, uh, Jean Covin's, right? But he was like, I'm not creative, I'm not an original, I'm not doing anything uh, that is like new theology. Uh, but Calvin, uh, who was originally trained as a lawyer, uh, had a brilliant mind, and he was going back to the church fathers, going back to the patristic period, and looking at, so where did, Calvin's question was, where did the church go wrong? Where did it get to the point of the degradation of the Roman Catholic Church at that period of time? And so he sought to answer it both from looking back to the patristics, but then also looking specifically to an exegesis of the Scripture 
in the original languages. So, with that being said, in Calvin's Institutes, he says this, God alone is a fit witness to Himself in His Word. Scripture is indeed self-authenticating. Scripture is itself self-authenticating. And so, it's part of the reason why uh, theologians will use this term to describe it, drawing from uh, Calvin, but also uh, less known by uh, those by Protestants, but, but certainly regarded as a noteworthy uh, theologian, Protestant theologian, was the Frenchman Francis Turretin. And I would, I would hope at least some of you have heard of Turretin before. Here's what Turretin said on this topic. He said, Thus Scripture which is the first principle in the supernatural order, is known by itself and has no need of arguments derived from without to prove and make itself known to us. In other words, what was Turretin arguing? Scripture is self-authenticating. Now, we're going to go into, considering we have enough time, and to break this down even further, but a couple of things to note. Self-authentication does not merely mean that Scripture says that it is Scripture. Uh, some would say, well, of course it's self-authenticating. Um, you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, doesn't it say that anyway? And so, Scripture says it, and so I believe it. Now, that's true, but that's not what we're arguing here. Nor does self-authentication mean that external evidence is ignored. As I had said before, we're going to come back to historical origins. We're going to come back to the reception by the church. All of that is important. But think about it this way. Here's the way that Westminster Confession, chapter 1.4 puts it. And I, this is just so, so beautifully written. Listen closely. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, and author thereof. Therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. And so that's one of those little sections within our confession that sometimes, and I know we've, we've done a study through the confession, through the larger catechism, through the shorter catechism, but it's one of those sections that oftentimes we just read right past and, and we forget that, that our ancestors have been arguing for the self-authentication of Scripture for a long time. So then what are the important aspects of the self-authenticating self-authenticating canon of Scripture. I have these on your handout. Let's look at these together. The first one is providential exposure. And, and I'm going to use some terms that may or may not be uh, familiar to you, but they're not technical terms. Uh, and you can argue, if you want to, semantically that something else might be used. Uh, but just stick with me, and let's, let's agree to use these terms, at least for right now, uh, that uh, important aspects, first of all, we'll start with this, is providential exposure. Providential exposure. Now, let me explain to you what we mean by that. First of all, we need to come to terms with the issue of God's intention. God's intention. Think about it this way. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says, 
For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Uh, so what, what Paul is getting at there is that as God has delivered His Word to us, there is intention in what God does. Uh, his Word is not haphazard. Uh, it's not uh, given uh, so that someone might come along and, and manipulate it and, and distort it and so forth, but there is intention in that. And then think about the, the, uh, the verse I quoted earlier, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is, is breathed out by God. But then Paul, in writing to Timothy, he goes on and talks about intention, right? The rest of that verse says, uh, "...and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." Uh, so what was God's intention in giving the breathed out word? Well, God's intention was that, that we might grow in His grace. Grow, as the Apostle Peter puts it, grow in our, our knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might mature. That, that uh, In verse 17, that idea of the man of God might be complete is the concept of maturing. We're maturing by God's grace in our sanctification and God's end goal is to be to make us and mold us into the image of Christ. Included in God's intention, so we have intention here, is God's ability. Is God's ability. Think about it this way. The, the psalmist says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Uh, and again, that's a general psalm in regards to God's sovereignty, right? But the idea is, is that God has the ability to give His people His written Word. What we have, what will be preached across the street today, what will be read across the street today, uh, if we sing a psalm, what will be sung across the street today, all of that is not only by, God, by God's intention, but so also it is by God's ability. He has chosen to give His Word. Uh, you think about it this way. <clears throat> in that, that wonderful section of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, after he has been humbled in this supernatural way, and then he is returned and restored, and he praises God. Within that, he says something incredible. He says, "...all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done?" And, and again, the, the reason for drawing this out, I've got several other verses that you can look at in your continued study of this uh, on your handout, but the general concept is, is that God who intends to reveal Himself and to reveal His will, He has the sovereign ability to do this. And He will do it as He pleases, how He has chosen to convey it. And, and that's incidentally, that's why the confession... The Westminster Confession does such a good job at carefully choosing words to express this because that's in essence what's conveyed in that first chapter uh, of, the, of the Confession. The idea that, that God has intended to do this all along, that we're exactly where God had chosen uh, us to be in the receiving of His Word and He has the ability to do this as 
He pleases. <clears throat> the second thing that I want to draw your attention is in addition to the providential exposure, meaning God chose to do it, God has the ability to do it, is the area of attributes and the Holy Spirit. Attributes and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Within the attributes, we would say, so then um, if Scripture is self-authenticating, then what are the attributes of it? How does Scripture testify of itself? And the first area, uh, and I think I have this on your handout, is for us to consider is what we'll call divine qualities. Divine qualities. John Murray, I know many of you have read John Murray's little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. John, you may recall, was a Scottish theologian, came and lived in the States for a number of years, was a notable professor at Westminster in Philadelphia, and wrote quite a bit on this topic. John says, John Murray says, if Scripture is divine in its origin, character, and authority, it must bear the marks or evidences of that divinity. Stop there for just a second. So what, what, what is Murray saying? Murray's saying that if Scripture is Scripture, it should come across as Scripture. That's essentially what, what he's saying there. It should, it should be notable that, wow, this, this is Scripture. He says, if the heavens declare the glory of God, so he's drawing there from Psalm 19, right? And therefore bear witness to their divine creator, the scripture as God's handiwork must also bear the imprints of his authority. Well, what's Murray drawing from there? Well, there's a number of places that we could go, but I would imagine that, that your mind and mine immediately goes to Hebrews chapter 4, a verse that's very familiar to a number of us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive. It actually uses the, the Greek there is in the affinitive. is living. It is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what Scripture does, among other things. There are, there are a number of things that it does, but you think about it this way. While we are not the ones who validate Scripture, Scripture is self-authenticating, I know a number of us, if not all, actually I hope and pray all of us, have been in a time in God's Word when we experience Hebrews 4.12. When God's Word, like a knife, doing its work in our, our heart, and in, in our, our mind. And, and so Scripture has these divine qualities by virtue of His work. But I think that the Westminster Confession, and this is a long quote, I'll prepare you for up front, but in chapter 1.5, I think this is probably the, the strongest statement in Protestant theology on this topic. Listen closely to what our confession says. We may be moved and induced by the, toast, by the testimony of the church 
to a high and reverent esteem of the Scripture. Let's pause there for just a second. What's the confession saying? So when the, when the church says, Behold the Word of God, uh, we may look to it and say, Aha, we agree with you. That is the, the Word of God. But then the confession goes on. And the heavenliness of the matter. The efficacy, meaning that it has its effect, right? The efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. Now, I know that's a lot. Uh, if I didn't put it on your handout, I highly encourage you to go back and, and read that for yourself. That's Westminster Confession, chapter 1.5. But in essence, what the Westminster divines are saying here is that first of all, Scripture has divine qualities. And this incidentally does, is not in, in the sense, uh, and the argument's not made in, in the sense of uh, the quality, it's, it's literary quality. So, so, for example, and I don't want to chase this rabbit too far, uh, but when the New Testament, for example, was written, that was written uh, during uh, what we refer to as the Koine Greek period. Uh, Koine Greek uh, was the common man's Greek that was used for business and common day transactions. And, and most everybody within that part of the world uh, spoke it or had a general understanding of that. It was the commoner's language. But it was not beautiful. You have to go back to the previous period, which is what is sometimes referred to as Attic Greek, A-T-T-I-C, Attic Greek, and that's the time of the philosophers and the Greek poets. And uh, if, you've, if you've ever studied the Greek language uh, before, uh, it, it is, it's heavy lifting. Um, it's hard to work through. Yours truly ain't smart enough. I ain't learned enough. Uh, to work my through, way through the, the, the great uh, literature of the Greeks, but you can at least, with a little bit of understanding, look at it and go, wow, that is, in our case, in the English language, some would argue, I would be one of those who argue, that the pinnacle of the English language is William Shakespeare. And so it was sort of the, the Shakespeare of that period. Um, the, the, the Koine Greek was, and I'm not... I'm, I'm not even sure I want to give an example, but it, was, um, it wasn't necessarily locker room talk, but it was just kind of the nuts and bolts, kind of, uh, I don't know, like texting with the common person, that kind of language. And so what the confession is, is saying is not that our Bible is written in the sense of a literary masterpiece. What it is saying is, is that God in His providence chose to write it, to convey it in the periods of time through the people of His choosing of particular reason, 
We can theorize, uh, we can guess, we can make hypothesis as to why. I, I, would, I would guess that uh, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek because just about everybody that was literate in that period could read it. I think that's a good idea. But I'm not God. I don't know why He chose to do that. But what we do know is that He did choose to do it. And then the second part of that is, and it's what the confession lands on here, but it's not just a matter of someone going, ah, yes, divine quality, it's very nice, very nice. Uh, That must be Scripture. No. Calvin said, the Holy Spirit within us says, yes, that's it. That is Scripture. The Holy Spirit testifies to us and uses the Word of God to do God's work within us. And so what we must remember... is that a refusal to believe Scripture does not invalidate them. In other words, if someone comes along, uh, an unbeliever comes along and and, and says, Word of God, my elbow. That's ridiculous. I've studied him. I've studied him in the original language. And that's just a bunch of, of nonsense. That doesn't invalidate Scripture. And I hope this is not the case, but you may be sitting here today and say, well, you know, I, I think some of it might be from God. Uh, I think it, it, at least it's a good shot. It's probably better than our alternative. That doesn't invalidate Scripture either. Scripture, because it is self-authenticating, then it doesn't matter if you think, or if there's no one else on the planet who thinks that it is not Scripture, but what it does tell about the person who says, eh, I don't think that's Scripture. It tells two things according to our doctrine. It tells us, first of all, they don't have faith. Second of all, it tells us that they don't have the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who says, that's it. That's Scripture. And so because it testifies, and because the Holy Spirit works and confirms this, then we may trust in it. I want to give you one passage of Scripture before I transition to the next section. And that is 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, specific, specifically verses 10 through 14. Alright, Paul, of course, writing to the church at Corinth. I'm going to pick up uh, kind of mid-sentence here in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Pause, hold there, before we go on with the rest of the verse. What did Paul just say there? It's actually pretty pretty plain. What did he just say there? The Holy Spirit who indwells every believer... The Holy Spirit who indwells every believer is the one who searches everything. And He knows the depths of God. It's the Holy Spirit that allows the believer to go to Scripture and see something that the unbeliever who's looking at the exact same page of Scripture doesn't see. Paul goes on, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God, except the Spirit of God. 
Pause there for just a second. Again, let's go back to this. So in terms of self-authentication and the divine attributes, how are those attributes witnessed? Well, whether we think that God's Word is divine or not is not the point. The point is, is that it is the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying is, is that only God testifies to Himself. If God is the only one who can swear by, or there's nothing higher, so God swears by Himself, so also God testifies to Himself, and He does that specifically through the Word of God. Paul then goes on. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that the Holy Spirit working in and through us, we are proclaiming the Word of God and those who also have the Holy Spirit, which is what he means there by those who are spiritual, they also are the ones who are able to understand what we are preaching and teaching. And then he goes on to say, "...the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned." Now, again, I would imagine all of us have experienced this uh, before. Uh, There can be something that just seems so crystal clear, uh, so evident within the Word of God. And we may have an unbelieving friend or an unbelieving family member. And in that conversation, uh, they they don't see it, they don't get it, they they deny it, uh, so forth and, and so on. Well, the point that Paul is making is, well, the reason is that the unbeliever does not see the divine attributes of Scripture because the unbeliever does not have the Holy Spirit. But because the believer does have the Holy Spirit, therefore the believer is able to see the divine attributes of Scripture. Now, and this is, study is going to go on. So this is not just today. We're going to elaborate more and more and, and dig deeper into this. Now, I want to go back. I've only got five minutes, but I want to go back then to these terms I used earlier. Because they're not unimportant. Historical origins do not validate Scripture. Church reception is not what validates Scripture. But, in terms of the divine attributes, the divine qualities, that is, and the Holy Spirit's work, we do see that, for example, and I'll start here with church reception, that church reception is involved in that. Think about it this way. Michael Kruger says, God's redemptive pattern has not been simply to redeem individuals, but to redeem a people a church for Himself. And when God, by His redemptive activity, creates a covenant community, He then gives them covenant documents that testify to that redemption. And what Dr. Kruger is essentially saying there is that while Scripture is not Scripture because the church says it's Scripture, Scripture is, in fact, seen and witnessed and understood as Scripture because the church, by and whole, is made up of those who 
possess the gift uh, guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And so because there are believers within the church, then they are able to see, yes, I see that is, is Scripture. It is to the church as a whole uh, that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, three verse 2, that the oracles of God have been given. The spiritual sayings, you could translate that really loosely, have been given. But the church sees it. Uh, in fact, um, a, a brilliant little book, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably forget the author, but, but it's, a, it's a really fun and fast read. I think the guy's a Brit. Uh, it's called Who Chose the Gospels? And I think it, his last name is Hill. Um, but you can... People watching online can Google that and, and correct me if I'm wrong. But who chose the Gospels? It is such a fun little read because in part of it, it talks about how the early church was recognizing this is, this is Scripture. Wow, this is Scripture. Wow, this is, is Scripture. And, and so it wasn't a, a church council that said, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're definitely the Gospels, uh, end of discussion. It was the church saying, this is the Word of God. Send this down the road to Thessalonica. Oh, they've got it too. They, they've seen, they've recognized its Word of God and so forth and so on. And it's just a, a brilliant uh, read, uh, not as lighthearted as I have perhaps have portrayed it, uh, but uh, a wonderful time on this topic. Jesus said, A stranger they will not, that is believers, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And then he goes on to say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Again, the idea there in terms of the canon of Scripture is that as believers, uh, believers know the Lord's voice. They recognize Scripture for what it is. And Roger Nicole, some of you may remember him. I think Nicole was a, a Baptist, but we won't hold that against him. Uh, I think Nicole said uh, or contended that we, cannot, we can know which books belong to the canon by appealing to the witness of the Holy Spirit given corporately to God's people and made manifest by a nearly unanimous acceptance, for example, in the New Testament canon in the Christian church. And what, what, what Nicole was... Uh, was, was saying there is that when you look back at history, what we see is that the church almost unanimously agreed in terms of the New Testament canon that Matthew through Revelation are in fact the Word of God. Of course, they didn't come all together like that, did they? Uh, came in, in bits and pieces over time and so forth uh, within the apostolic era. But the point that Nicole's making is, is that historically we see a church reception there. Therefore, the church does not determine the canon, but receives it as a natural and inevitable outworking of the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. And that's an important distinction. Again, at the sake of being redundant, what we're saying is, is that the church is not the one who says what Scripture is, but the church does, in fact, see, recognize, and acknowledge what Scripture is. And, 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 and that's not splitting hairs. That's an important distinction because it keeps Scripture where it belongs, and that is as the Word of God. And then finally, on apostolic origins, and I'm closing here, Scripture is not just about Christ's redemptive work, but the laid-down permanent foundation given to the church. 
God has chosen within His providence to, within the age in which we live, to give us a full and complete canon of Scripture. He's not adding to it. It is, in fact, complete, and we have it. We have, in fact, the Word of God. And I'll close with this. Theologian Herman Riberdoss said, Historical judgment cannot be the final and sole ground for the churches accepting the New Testament as canonical. To accept the New Testament on that ground would mean the church would ultimately be basing its faith on the results of historical evidence. What Riberdoss was saying is, is that Scripture is not Scripture because historical evidence supports it, nor is it Scripture because the church says it, but in fact, Scripture is recognized by the church, which we see in the historical evidence. And i got to close there so we can get to church. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, oh, how we thank You for Your Word and how often we take it for granted. You have given us something within the era in which we live that is extraordinary. It is supernatural. It is literally breathed out by You, and You have given it, us, given it to us that we may know You and know Your will. O oh, gracious God in heaven, by Your Holy Spirit, would You encourage us, enable us to be faithful students of Your Word. And now we pray as we prepare to worship together as Your people that You would bless our time of worship. May You be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.